I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to UpZoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of UpZone, a show where we take a big story from the media each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I am happily reporting from 2022. We took a few weeks off there. (laughs) So this is the first episode of the season. I'm back. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City. And I'm joined today by our regular co-host and founder of Strong Towns, Chuck Marone. Hello, Chuck. New year, new Chuck. Yes, happy new year. (laughs) A new year, a new, a brand new me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a brand new Chuck this year. Uh, Maybe it'll be new and improved, hopefully. Yes. And I know we are just audio right now, but Chuck does have kind of a new office set up behind him that I can see. And so it is kind of new year, new Chuck, because I've not seen this office before. You get the studio, which the studio is under renovation right now uh, (laughs) to make some upgrades and improvements. And so I'm sitting at my normal desk and you were like, wow, this is all like uh, pimped out. really nice. I got the fireplace. I got the (laughs) Easter Island statues. You, You didn't realize I got the confessional and the ice machine right over here. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> you're gonna have to come visit. It's very, it's very. I've got, I've got a good setup here. I like the wood paneling. You have blue painted wood paneling, and it's just a nice vibe. It's, it's nice. This place was a yarn shop before I moved in. So I'm in, I'm in the former middle school here, where I, where I went to middle school, where I went to eighth and ninth grade, Franklin Junior High. It's now been converted into an artist studio. And so half the places live work units and then half the place are, are studios like mine. And yeah, when I moved in, it was formerly a yarn shop and it was painted really funky and weird. And <laughs> I kind of made it a little, a little Chuck office So yeah. it's respectable in a sense, like it's got a respectable vibe, but it also is kind of a little bit funky, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a good vibe. It yeah. not you've definitely you've washed away a bit of the yarn shop vibes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Much uh-huh. more professional, very good. It looks great. I'm just in the I'm in the basement of my office, and it's really nothing very special. It's just a podcasting slash nursing room. <laughs> well, the fake fireplace is designed to, at the very least, make me feel warmer. Because when I got up this morning, it was minus 34 below. And I know it's not above zero yet. It's uh, it's very cold here in Minnesota this week. We we have a couple of weeks every year where it's like brutally cold. And, you know, I don't, I'm not saying I love it, but I don't hate it. And you just kind of get through it and then move on. But the fireplace makes me feel warmer, if nothing else. Well, as you know, I am somebody who's more adapted to warmer climates, although I am not from a warm climate. I just like them (laughs) and I'm not very well adapted to cold climates. I have been very impressed by my colleague, Chris Brewster, who has been walking to work every single day for several weeks now. Um, And it's extremely cold outside here in Kansas City. He's been walking every day still. And I'm just really blown away by that. And I, I've been thinking that that's the hardest thing he'll do all day. 
So, you know, even if, you know, he has to deal with something difficult, it's like if he can walk to work uh, 40 minutes in zero degree weather, then that's the most difficult thing he will probably do today. So it's a gritty thing to do that I am not well positioned to start doing that is impressive to me. I know we have to get into this, but I walk here every day. (laughs) It is seven blocks. So it's not like I'm walking many multiple miles, but yeah, I mean, you just bundle up and do it and you kind of get, as Steve Mozan uh, has said, you know, you, you kind of get used to it and then it just becomes easy. And I think that's kind of where I'm at with it. I need to learn how to embrace the cold or find a different climate. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I should probably start embracing the cold. That's that's half half my life in the winter, I guess. Okay, so the article that we are covering today is, this is a good one to kick off the new year. So this is an opinion article published in Bloomberg. It is entitled, U.S. Housing Crisis Only Gets Worse as Population Shrinks. Uh, by Connor Sen. So recent reports about U.S. population growth may have many people concerned about the rippling economic effects that may come with stagnation. According to Bloomberg, the United States population grew last year by only 0.1% as birth rates and immigration has declined. And while having less people in the housing market competing seems to be a potential positive for housing costs, the author points out that declining overall population more likely means more competition to live in the most desirable places. This is because stagnation and decline would theoretically hit areas that had already been shrinking in population, economic investment, and opportunity, such as rural areas or more remote areas. There's also a concern about the housing construction industry and how they might react to population stagnation on a nationwide scale, because that means potentially less customers. And the author warns that this could lead to the consolidation of the supply chain and reduced competition in the market that would, in theory, drive prices down over time. So one suggestion that they have as we start to think about this issue is to frame the U.S. as 384 metro areas because housing dynamics are best viewed through this metropolitan kind of lens and how these areas are structured. And this might help us understand where in the U.S. we might see continued decline of population and we might see continued growth. So the author points out that declining metros like Akron, Syracuse, Toledo may see continued fading prospects if the national population continues to be stagnant. And metros that are seeing significant growth, the national population stagnation could mean that housing affordability issues get worse over time as people leave declining and stagnating metro areas. The author calls this concept demographic refugees, drawing from this idea of climate refugees. So this piece, I'm glad we're talking about this piece. I think it's really interesting to me because it very much relates to that narrative outlined in the book, One Billion Americans by Matthew Iglesias, who I know you've interviewed on this, on your own Strong Towns podcast before. So I'd love to hear your perspective about this 
notion of population growth driving the prosperity of cities. Um, while the author doesn't really necessarily go as far as the one billion Americans idea, um, it certainly does explore these potential concerns that could come with lack of overall growth and how that plays out in the dynamics of cities that are kind of competing with one another. In addition to, you know, cities and metros, which encompass lots of municipalities competing with each other. So never ending growth is kind of what facilitates that to work. So what are your thoughts on that? I would step back a sec and recognize the source of this article, because I, I think that's one of the interesting starting points here. It's We said it's out of Bloomberg, and it is. Bloomberg now has kind of two different veins going in terms of housing. They have the historic Bloomberg, which is a financial network, right? And so Bloomberg Financial is a television network. Bloomberg Online is financial news, kind of a focus on Wall Street and how it affects corporations and investing. There's another strain of Bloomberg, which is their merger with City Lab. So you have Bloomberg City Lab, which has this more urbanist kind of vibe, you know, the the Richard Florida kind of aspect to it. And so there's a, a certain amount of intellectual analysis and a certain kind of uh, urban economics and urban urbanism and, and looking at housing in that way. I feel like what this article is doing is it's kind of masquerading as the latter while it actually begins its premise with the former. In other words, this is written by someone with a financial lens and analysis trying to have a conversation about urbanism and affordability. And it comes through in a really kind of whacked way. Part of the the Wall Street narrative, and I, I think this is where the urbanist discussion and the financial discussion are both in their own crazy la-la land. They both have like certain groundings in reality that the other does not possess, right? They both have certain insights that the others lack. But because they lack the other insight and are not able of grasping it and appreciating it, it really makes their narrative on its own seem kind of crazy. And that, that's what I get here. I get the Wall Street narrative, which the Wall Street narrative defaults to prices go up. Prices go up for housing. Prices go up for stocks. Prices go up for bonds. Prices go up. And so what you see in this article is the opening premise, which cannot conceive of a world where prices do not like broadly go up and then, you know, fit into that uh, some insights on demographic shifts and try to connect those two. How will these demographic shifts make prices go up? And the conclusion is, well, if nobody's moving here, Everyone's going to want to move to real high value places and that will make prices go up there. In the other places, prices will go up because developers won't want to build there and prices go up. And I think that there's a lot of reasons why prices are going to go up. I think that this you know, investment projected urbanist analysis is a very limited way of thinking about what is an incredibly dynamic system. Yeah, so that is a really important insight that kind of clashes with that narrative because so and when I was reading this article it it kind of seems to be 
based in this idea that people will not live in stagnating or even declining places. And I think that we can look at a lot of places throughout the country and realize that that is not true. (laughs) You know, lots of people live in areas that have declined, that have stagnated. Obviously, the condition of places is not static. You know, they you could have a place that declines for a few decades and then it grows for a few decades. So I think that the analysis at kind of this macro level leaves out how dynamic different places are and how different places kind of operate. It's not like things operate just in a vacuum. Also, if you are living in, let's say, a long declining part of the country, maybe a small town that has been stagnating or declining for several decades, and then, you know, you have the Austins or the the superstar cities that are growing, you may have other things driving whether or not you would go to a place like Austin. It's not just economic opportunity that drives people to move to places. There may be other reasons that people choose to live in a place or are unable to move to a place. If you currently are living in a place that doesn't afford you a very prosperous life or good job opportunities, there's a lot involved with moving to another place. You may not, there may not be a lot of opportunity for you in a place like Austin or or some of these other growing cities. This analysis kind of leaves out the nuance around why people live in places that they do. And it really got me kind of thinking about what drives big life decisions like that. And also the root of this article, whether people choose to have children. And I think that's kind of an important thing that isn't really explored in this analysis because this is more of a financial perspective. But I think there is something to getting to the root of declining birth rate and then what also what is kind of guiding how families operate, how women operate in society, economic challenges associated between job opportunities and ability to, or even perceived ability to raise a family. So there's all these kinds of elephants in the room and and things that drive how people choose to live, where they choose to live in a way that is much more nuanced than people, everybody will just move to the places where all the jobs are. That That's not necessarily the case. Well, let's just start with the premise, too, of the article, which is America didn't grow in population last year. And if that continues into the future, here's what's going to happen. And let's drill down then to a real place. Like I'll start with mine. And then I think we look at yours as two just micro examples. Brainerd fits into that 50 million area, 50 million population area. He said that's outside of a major metropolitan area. It's kind of like, well, there's something going on out there, but it's, you know, it's only 50 million people, so whatever. But if you look at Brainerd itself, the neighborhood that I live in, North Brainerd, has had kind of a renaissance. We've not grown in population at all since the end of World War II. It's been stagnant, 13,500 people at the end of World War II, basically 13,500 people today. Yet what you can see is over that period of time, there has been an ebb and a flow in terms of what neighborhoods were doing well, what neighborhoods were struggling, uh, where the energy was in the area. 
I say many times in the talks that I give, we're the same population, but we're 10 times the size. And so we certainly went through that period of time where it's like all the rich people moved to the outskirts of town and let's build some new stuff out there. And then now what we're seeing is that some of the older stuff in that neighborhoods, those neighborhoods are actually becoming the affordable places because they're they're old, they're falling apart. It's part of the whole growth Ponzi scheme. You see a neighborhood like mine, which is a core neighborhood in the city. We were kind of the early adopters in a group that moved back in, but now you're seeing lots of people move in and inhabit these neighborhoods and start to fix up the homes. And you're starting to see them rise at rates higher than inflation. So within a market as tiny as mine, which is really, really small compared to, say, Kansas City, where you're at, let alone Austin or Miami or what have you, you have all this dynamism without any population change at all, right? Without really any net out migration or net in migration, you're still seeing all this dynamism in terms of prices within a market. If you go to Kansas City, it's even greater, right? I mean, you, you see neighborhoods that are rising, neighborhoods that are declining. We can identify properties within 20-minute drive of your house that basically the city can't give away, that are tax forfeit and the city can't give away. And then we find other places that are you know very, very expensive and very high-end and very luxury. And if we went back 20 years into the past, those dynamics would have been somewhat similar, but 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 different. There's been a lot of change in the last two decades. So this idea that we can create some macro analysis that would appeal to an investor and a real estate, you know, investment trust who says, uh, you know, yes to Austin and no to Akron is really, I think the manifestation of a top down wall street, big money flow kind of mindset. And I think what people should hear from it is that, that is not only not what is going on on the ground, but that type of investment strategy and that type of way of looking at the world, which is the way that finance works in this country today. And by the way, the way that Washington, D.C. and policymakers tend to look at things as well is not reflective in any way of the actual economics on the ground. And in fact, is very dislocated from how most of us value properties and most of us look at life. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And when you were describing your place, I was just thinking that Kansas City has a lot of those same dynamics. It's just scaled up, you know, it's and there are areas that are, you know, growing rapidly. There are areas that are stagnating. There are areas that are declining. It's, you know, a complex system and it's not something that really you can just put in a bubble and label it one thing. There's a lot of stuff going on. And then I think to that point about where people live and why they choose to live in a place and where this article that gets at, they, they frame one reason why people would move to a place. And that's that's where the growth is. That's where the job opportunities are. That's where the economic prosperity is located. And, you know, Kansas City is a lot of things to a lot of people. There may be people who move to Kansas City because they see it as a place for job opportunities and to raise their own economic status. There, uh, Kansas City may be a place where your family is. And so some people move back to Kansas City from other cities because their family is located here and, hey, they want to have children and they want to be closer to family. So that is one reason I know some people have moved back to Kansas City from other places. 
I've actually met a few people from places like Austin and in areas that are have become too expensive who have moved to Kansas City over the past couple of years, actually. So um, some people may decide that they can't afford to buy a house in these kind of superstar cities and they have a better chance at being a homeowner in a smaller midsize city in the Midwest. So I think it's important to kind of understand that people go to move to places for all kinds of reasons. I also think that it's important to kind of draw on that idea that stagnation or even having a um, declining population is really a balance of resources that are available and how the resources are allocated. And that's really the key of what makes a city a great and functional place, no matter what the scale is. If you are 300 people or if you are 300,000 people, I think uh, Dutch cities are a good example of relatively small cities and villages where things have been scaled to make really great places that, you know, urbanists around the world would revere as places that are some of the best places on earth, and they may not be experiencing significant growth. I think that kind of the American perspective emphasizes cities as machines for growth, even within, like I mentioned, smaller metro areas, municipalities compete with each other for growth and economic development. And so with that framework, it makes makes kind of logical sense on a macro level to think that without growth, some places will have to shrink and in order for other places to grow. But, you know, from a planning perspective, I think it's important to consider that we can plan for cities to manage stagnation in a way that doesn't necessarily mean the apocalypse, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I, I do think that, you know, much like a lot of dynamic things in our economy, what we're going to see is in the next coming decades is geographic shrinking of cities, even in places that are growing in population. So you're going to see a, a reconfiguration. What you've kind of landed on and, and, and what I think this article points out is the, the kind of great blind spot that Wall Street finance and kind of the, the public policy mechanisms that enable it uh, has about housing investments. They, they tend to treat housing investments like a commodity, uh, something that can be put on a secondary market, securitized, sold in a bundle with a whole bunch of other things, the, the same way you would things like iPhone or cell phone plan or, you know, uh, you know, an automobile or name, you know, name your thing that is not a commodity like oil and gold or silver or copper, but, but something that is more of a product that, that could be compared apples to apples across places. And, and the reality is, is that homes in the real world don't operate that way. People will do ridiculously irrational things in order to live in a certain place or in order to uh, have a certain experience or in order to be near their family or be by their friends or be by the girl that they're smitten with or, you know, <laughs> we, we, yeah. name whatever it is. We, we all do stupid things and irrational things that the marketplace struggles to make sense of when it commoditizes this. And I, I think 
the market people will say, well, you know, each individual could be irrational, but over the broad sense, we are rational human beings into an irrational marketplace. And the reality is, is like, no, it's not. And when you treat uh-huh. it that way, you miss something really, really important. And you make fundamentally stupid statements like, you know, uh, housing goes up everywhere all the time. And, and here's why. <laughs> I yeah. think we could get the urbanist blind spots about finance are because they're equally egregious. You know, the idea that housing doesn't react to markets the way that uh, people think they should. And there's there's too much stickiness. There's a whole bunch of blind spots that I think urbanists have about housing that the finance people get right. I think where the consensus is, and I think where we're going to struggle is there's a built-in kind of what Ben Hunt at Epsilon Theory would call the common knowledge game. And the common knowledge game right now, the thing that we all believe that we all believe is that prices are going to go up. That's kind of the, the unifying belief amongst everybody. And we saw in 2008 how radical the world changes when people just stop believing that let alone stop like experiencing it in the real world. When people stop believing that housing prices are going to go up significantly every year, it changes everyone's behavior and it changes how they react to those investments. And it does so in dramatic fashion. And, and I find that to be, I find this, to, this article to be almost an attempt to like affirm what we all believe we all believe, which is prices will continue to go up in the face of suggestions that that is not going to be true. I think that we're going to come to grips soon with the idea that housing can correct and correct in a large way. Well, I think we should leave it there. This is a, this is an interesting conversation that I think if, if the population continues to stagnate is, I'm I'm sure this is not the last hot take that we'll hear about this kind of issue. <laughs> yeah. No. So let alone from us, right? Yeah, let alone from us. We'll continue <laughs> to to hear our hot takes here at Upsound. Um, so we'll leave it there. But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been reading, listening to, watching. It's probably been like a month since we've talked. So what have you been up to over the last month? When I bake, I do all my fiction. I listen to fiction books and I went through like four of them at the end of the year. It's always a beautiful way to end the year. I I did manage to read one nonfiction book and that was uh, Peter Norton's latest book, which is called Autonorama. And I think that's how he would say it. The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. It's been a fascinating book. Like Peter Norton does, he did a book called Fighting Traffic that was a great recitation of kind of the evolution of us from a pre-automobile to an automobile obsessive culture. He goes back and, and I think the thing that's been most stark for me is how he documents basically how in the 1940s and the 1950s, they were having conversations about how a decade from now, we will have automated driving. Cars will drive themselves. We won't just get to sit and, and read the newspaper or you know watch the television while people drive us around. Th- this idea that a utopia was just around the corner has been with us a long time. And it's actually fueled decades of insane policy uh, because you know we can put off dealing with this issue or that issue because, as you and I see often, 
well, automated cars are just going to take care of that and they're a decade away. I'm going to be interviewing him on the Strong Downs podcast. I'm really psyched about it because it was a great book. You know, what's fascinating about that is that we not only always have this notion of utopia with us, but we also <laughs> always have this notion that apocalypse is right around the corner, which yeah. is interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> it's, you know, just over time, it's always uh, the end of the world and also always about to be the beginning of a world. <laughs> Let me put some nuance on that, though, because I think the idea, the idea kind of like a myth, it's not with us, but it's always with us. It's not real, but it's always with us. There's something like deeply human about it. And I think that if, if all of us had a tinge of like fear of apocalypse, what you would do is you would be like mildly prepared for the worst, not like bunker prepared, but like mildly prepared. Um, and if you all had the fact that like utopia could happen, um, you would have all the like upside potential without a lot of the downside risk. I actually think that what we've been encouraged to do is embrace wildly the upside potential while not really hedging ourselves much on the downside risk, except in a chicken little kind of sense. We should talk about that one. I feel like we could spend a whole episode on just that topic because yeah, I feel that there's very much this chicken little kind of sense, but it's not, one where you do anything about it. <laughs> right. It's one, again, kind of like the utopia where you somebody else is going to take care of it for us. You go out and shake your fist at the asteroid that's coming towards uh -huh. you. Yeah, no, I get <laughs> yeah. it. I, I totally get it. Yeah. So for my down zone, I actually was just going to share a project I've been working on. So over Thanksgiving, I went over to my mom's house and she gave me all of our childhood photos, <laughs> like thousands of photos. So I told her that I was going to get them scanned and put them on a drive. And that way our whole family and family friends could access them. I looked into services to do that. And it's very, very expensive. So I bought a scanner. So I have been spending the past several weeks Scanning photos one by one, and I've made pretty significant progress. Um, and it's just been cool to, you know, it takes like 25 seconds to scan each photo. So I get to actually like sit and look at each photo. So it's kind of cool. It's, it's like unlocked memories from my childhood that I hadn't thought about in a long time. Like, you know, articles of clothing, things that I had you know, rooms in the house and what color they used to be, just really detailed things that, you know, it's, it's fun to revisit. And I just, I've got, I have three siblings. And so I uh, never really thought about how much fun we had growing up. And so yeah. it's cool to have, have three siblings. <laughs> That's wonderful. I think of my grandparents a lot at, at Christmas time. And you just sparked a memory. I, I was sitting once with my grand, with my, my grandpa and grandma Marone, uh, so on my dad's side and, um, my grandfather held up a photo and he said, uh, look at this. And I said, wow, who is that? She's, uh, she's absolutely beautiful. It was this woman and she was walking and she was like, had a suitcase and she looked like she was about to jet set, you know, in the, in the forties, which would have been like really glamorous. And, uh, <laughs> 
And my grandpa started to smile and he turned the photo around to show my grandma. And my grandma goes, you Chucky, you stop that right now. Because it was a picture <laughs> of her. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I uh, love so that. It was, it, it, was, it, was, it was one of those happy memories where it's like, you know, I had no idea that this was my grandma. And I said, wow, she was, who is that? She's a, like incredibly beautiful. And yeah, my grandma was a, a beautiful woman. That's so cool. Yeah, it's uh, if, if you have photos, it's definitely worth digitizing them. I put all of mine on a Google Drive and shared them out with my family and told them I'm about halfway done. So here's what I have so far. Um, and, you know, I think they've really appreciated it. Um, I have one grandparent left. And so I know my uncle is, I don't think she has a computer. <laughs> so I think he's showing her the Google Drive and apparently she's just loving them. So that makes That's me happy, awesome. makes it all worth it. And now, now we have all these photos and everybody has access to them. So beautiful. Yeah. Well, Chuck, uh, until next week, good to talk to you as always. Thanks for joining me and thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upsound. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care.